You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 through 6, Exclusions from the Assembly. Having explained laws relating to marriage and family and property, Moses now proceeds to speak about behavior and stipulations regarding worship. There were to be exceptions as to who could enter the tabernacle area to worship. The first one regarded eunuchs. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. This crushing of testicles was the method that was used by pagan parents to promote their children into positions of honor in the homes of the great. It was done so that they could be trusted not to make sexual advances towards any women in the home. And the reason this was a factor in their exclusion had to do with the fact that it violated God's purpose in the creation of man and was associated with idolatrous practices. The next regarded illegitimate children or those from forbidden marriages. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. The phrase, not even in the tenth generation, implied a lasting ordinance. So those born outside of marriage of the parents were excluded to condemn and stigmatize the sin of sexual misconduct. Forbidden marriage, as it's translated here, could refer to a marriage with an unbeliever. So this is not a reference to mixed marriages of different races or nationalities, but the contrast is always in relation to differences in spirituality since it was allowed if the person converted to Judaism, as in the case of Ruth, who was a Moabitess. The third exception related to the Ammonites and Moabites, along with their descendants. So this was not because of their beginnings out of incest, but because of their shameful behavior to the Israelites, both sins of omission and commission. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam son of Beor from Pethor in Aram, Naharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So this incident with Balaam is recorded in Numbers 22 to 25 and Joshua 24. So some of the tribes of Israel lived near these two nations on the east side of the Jordan, and God was concerned that the Israelites would mingle with or intermarry with them and be influenced by their pagan practices. After the exile, when the scattered Israelites uh, returned to Jerusalem and Judah, they were quick to implement this. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. So when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. That's in Nehemiah 13, 1-3. However, later, 
on when it was discovered that many had intermarried with foreign pagan women, first during Ezra's time, it says, But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. And again, a little later during Nehemiah's time, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah, who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? That's in Nehemiah 13. So, verses 7 and 8, Edomites and Egyptians accepted. So do not despise an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. Do not despise an Egyptian, because you resided as foreigners in their country. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. These two groups were exceptions for after a shorter time, because although they had been enemies of Israel, the Edomites were related, since they descended from Jacob's twin brother Esau, and the Egyptians had shown kindness to the Israelites at the Exodus. He also says it was because they had lived there as strangers. Verses 9-14 to 14, Uncleanness in the Camp The Israelites had been taught to distinguish between things that were ceremonially clean and unclean. So as adults, they were to guard themselves. When you are encamped against your enemies, keep away from everything impure. Then a provision is made for involuntary uncleanness during the night, which would result in ceremonial uncleanness until the following evening. They were even told to designate areas outside the camp for washrooms. The reason for these distinctions was because God was among them. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy, so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. So these stipulations for external cleanliness and purity demonstrated the deeper meaning of what God expected of his people's hearts. Verses 15 to 25, Miscellaneous Laws Then Moses describes several miscellaneous laws that further demonstrate the integrity, purity, and kindness that was to characterize life lived under God's covenant. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. 
Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. So escaped slaves are not to be turned back to their masters. So this presupposes that, that they escaped because of mistreatment. So it would be cruel to send them back into that situation. So this would not be an Israelite since they would only be in servitude to another Israelite for a maximum of six years. So this may include any of their conquered enemies who desired to live life under Israel's God. No Israelite man or woman who is to, is to become a shrine prostitute. Prostitution of any kind was forbidden, but the pagan nations around them practiced sacred prostitution, if those two words should even be said together, using sexual activity to worship their fertility gods. Such things must not be done in Israel. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow, because the Lord your God detests them both. So this further forbade the practice of money laundering, using the money gained from prostitution to give to the Lord in the form of a payment of a vow, as if it would negate the guilt of the sin they were about to return to committing. What matters is not just how much we give, but the manner in which it was obtained. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelites, Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. So they were to show kindness within the community of Israel and not cause undue hardship for one another. According to Deuteronomy 15, 1-6, they could lend money to one another, but any unpaid debt had to be cancelled in the seventh year. If they did this, God promised to bless them in everything they endeavored. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. So this was an encouragement to keep promises and avoid rash vows. They must be truthful in speech and follow through on their commitments. The reason was because they made the vow freely. No one coerced them to do it. They were free to refrain, but once the vow was made, they were obligated to keep it. So in Leviticus 27 and Numbers 30, we studied vows in more detail. But the basic principle was that a man was responsible to keep any vow or oath or pledge he has made to the Lord. He was obligated to follow through on his commitment, and he must not break his word, but do everything he said. Rash vows dishonor God and cause anxiety to the one who has made them. Vows were not meant to be a means of bargaining with God. He wants us to be wise as well as devout. He takes vows made to him seriously. Therefore, there were penalties attached to deter this practice. That's in Leviticus 27. And there are four cases of rash vows in the Bible, three in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. The first was by Joshua and the elders of Israel, who promised not to kill the Gibeonites. They made this promise rashly, without consulting God. They had been tricked, but they honored their promise. 
That's in Joshua 9. The second is by Jephthah in Judges 11, where he vowed to sacrifice whatever came out of his door after God gave him a military victory. What did he really expect? So when his only daughter appeared, he was crushed, but he followed through on it. God did not require human sacrifice. In fact, he hated it. So in this case, he should not have kept his vow. He, made, he had made it not in faith, but as a means of bargaining with God. The third one was by King Saul, when he forbade his soldiers food and drink until the battle was over. His own son Jonathan, who hadn't heard this oath, tasted some honey. Then Saul was willing to put him to death, but the people intervened and saved Jonathan's life. And so here was a vow that was not fulfilled, and yet there is no censure from God because of it. In the book of Esther, the king also promises to give her whatever she desires up to half his kingdom, but this is seen as hyperbole to emphasize his generosity and love for her. Also, Xerxes was a pagan king and not under the stipulations of the Mosaic law. In the New Testament, the famous example is Herod Antipas. Finally, an opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? the head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison. So in this case, Herod should not have followed through because it was a wicked act based on a rash vow. He was probably less concerned with keeping God's law regarding vows and more concerned with the opinions of his guests. So these cases teach by example that we should not seek to do because of a promise what God has already clearly forbidden in his word. Later, King Solomon would say, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? That's in Ecclesiastes 5, 1-6. So the main teaching in this section about vows is truth-telling. Honesty is still somehow held up as an ideal, but it is understood that many, particularly in positions of authority, do not tell the truth. The only embarrassing lie is the one that gets found out. People make promises or pledges only to manipulate others. 
people break their vows all the time, contracts, marriages, and even commitments to local churches. This is sad but true. Next, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. Farmers were required to share their produce with the poor in the land, but people were not to abuse their generosity and profit from the hard work of others. It was not meant to be their personal supermarket. So this application of the law reflects a balance between personal property and the need to share God's blessings with others. Scarlet threads. So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? So someone who was a eunuch could not worship in the assembly of the Lord. In the book of Acts 8, 27 and 28, an Ethiopian eunuch of the court of Candace was returning from worshiping in Jerusalem and was reading the scriptures. As such, he would not have been allowed to become a full proselyte or convert to Judaism. Believers were not to marry unbelievers, and this is still the case. During this time, God excluded certain people groups from worship unless they were converted because of the influence they could have on his people and because of their past behavior. But in the New Covenant, no one is turned away because of the sins of their parents. Everyone is welcome in the universal church. Indeed, all people everywhere are commanded to repent, and the church is made up of all peoples, nations, tribes, and languages. But we must be less concerned with growing a large church and more concerned with growing a pure church. Paul speaks of the change in them from before conversion and afterwards. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God was concerned to maintain purity and cleanliness in the camp because he was among them. We must be holy and keep our minds unpolluted and our bodies from engaging in sin because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. They were not to return an escaped slave to their owner. When we are saved from our slavery to sin, Jesus accepts us and never turns us away. They were not to be prostitutes. We are to be pure sexually, whether married or unmarried. When a person took an oath in God's name to tell the truth, they were required to do so or bear the blame, because God took oaths and vows and truthfulness seriously. While we are no longer under these obligations, God still requires truthfulness from his people. God takes vows seriously, and we need to consider and determine what to give so we avoid rash vows and then regret them. In the early church, they willingly sold property and possessions and shared the proceeds with each other. Barnabas sold a field and gave the money to the apostles, but Ananias and Sapphira wanted to have recognition for generosity, but secretly kept back some of the money while claiming to have given a larger amount. 
Jesus probably had such vows in mind when he said we should speak truthfully and plainly, without having to resort to vows to affirm our word. Honest, plain speech reveals our, our character. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And James says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So this does not mean that we are never to use oaths. We do when we testify in court or when we make our wedding vows or oaths of citizenship. During Jesus' trial, the high priest put him under oath to admit who he was, and he did. It says, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Deuteronomy chapter 24. May God bless the study of his word.